we are right in the middle of it with this conversation with Tyson Yankaporta. He's an amazing man with deep roots in the Western philosophical, scientific, and literary traditions, as well as ancestral relationship and current relationships to the Aboriginal population of Australia. And in between there is his struggle and his cutting edge. And this is not just Tyson talking about his ideas on this subject. Subject. This is him sharing his pain and his struggle. So please listen with a lot of compassion and depth. And I think a lot of us will be able to relate to his struggles. I know I certainly do. Let's send him all our love. Thank you. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life Enhancing, Paradigm Rattling Conversations with Cutting Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh and our co-host is John Dupuy, author of Integral Recovery. And our guest today is Dr. Tyson Yunker Porter a fellow Australian, a man of many parts and many perspectives, who's lived in many worlds and has many, many talents. By birth, he's an Australian Aboriginal of the Alapesh clan, which is in far northern Queensland, probably, I think, very close to where I grew up in Julie Creek, a little town of 400. He's an artist who does traditional wood carvings, also an art critic, and an academic. He founded the Deakin University Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab and is a senior lecturer in Indigenous Knowledges. He's also an author, author of dozens of academic articles, a lot of them on pedagogy, teaching, both Western and Aboriginal teaching methods. And he's the author of, as of now, at this time of this conversation, one book, but with another soon to be out, and which will be out by the time this uploaded. His first book is Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And his new book, Right Story, Wrong Story. That's as intriguingly as anything for me. He's also a podcast host of the uh, podcast, The Other Others, which I had a great time listening to. So Tyson, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, and you've had a really unique role. You have been immersed in two different worldviews, cultures, educational systems, lifeways. And you have acted as a kind of intermediary between these two. Maybe we could just start with a big picture. What, do you, what have been the advantages and the challenges of living in two worlds as you have? Uh, well, I don't know, even just the idea of, you know, there being these two worlds and that you have an option of living in one or the other. <laughs> we don't. You know, Australia is squatting right on top of us, illegally. <laughs> and, you know, they don't speak our languages, so we have to speak theirs. Yeah, so, you know, in that vein, I say hello and, yeah, I'm... Talking to you from Bunurong country right now in, you know, down the bottom of Australia, pretty close to Antarctica. If the world was flat, like some people say, I could like get a decent telescope and just watch Antarctica 
crumbling into the sea right now and then just sort of wait for all the super storms and 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 drones to come after that because <laughs> here we are at the end of the world gentlemen and yeah like i say we don't really have an option to live in one world or the other you know as aboriginal people we live in a I don't know if you, you think about a Venn diagram, people think two equal circles overlapping. It's like, well, if you imagine one of those circles a lot smaller and sort of hanging off the bottom, like a, some sort of scrotum, that's, that's our world there. But we don't live in our world. We can visit our world for like conjugal visits where we have to live is in the overlap space, that mm-hmm. tiny little interface. Uh, we must master the codes of the colony. We must speak the languages. We must do the work, you know, train, get the jobs, uh, try not to die, go to about 10 times as many funerals as everyone else and just try and scrape through. Yeah, so I I don't live in two worlds. You know, I I live in a colony (laughs) and there's only one world in that one. Yeah, so I guess that's what it's like. It's just, uh, I don't know, you both look perturbed, but I, I find all that hilariously funny because what else are you going to do so you know and when i write when i write about it i try and i try and make it jokes about it you know i'm speaking perturbed i'm feeling pain you know my heart's opening to you i can i can feel that you you know you've been through a lot of stuff anyway so oh well it's a bad week so it's uh i I don't know i'm not doing my due diligence on uh on the on the comedy the comedy side so i better i better get my act together there and start being funnier um (laughs) i i think that's that's how we survive you know we have very very good sense of humor you know we we have lots of big yarns and we we laugh a lot we laugh right in the middle of bad stuff even we're very high functioning mourners because we have a very good um you know a really excellent morning process and funerary rites and all these sorts of things that are designed to facilitate fast healing, good, strong, deep healing, you know, from grief, you know, amazing, amazing psychotechnologies of mourning, you know, like uh, even, even right down to the, the collective death whale and that, that, that's that sort of frequency of the death whale and how that just goes through you. That's healing. You know, all of the little rituals and stages and processions and, you know, and then follow-up rituals that go for up to a year afterwards, you know, all these things are really healing and, you know, quite amazing. And they can really sort of get you get you in the, in the old grind set. You're able to sort of go to work again on the Monday and, and hold your head up and, uh, and get out there in the two worlds. <laughs> <laughs> that we're supposed to be living in it's like no we live in we live in this one world where there's you know real estate real estate etched over the top of our land you know you know our, our land is is transformed into real estate which is somebody else's capital which they use to borrow against to speculate on you know in uh, speculate into infinity you know into in a derivatives market invented by the dutch who landed here incidentally 500 years ago and we speared the bastards and they went back and their response to that was to start the first world's first corporation <laughs> so it's kind of our fault it's our fault we started the whole the gfc is our fault yeah getting speared does, does things like that um yeah yeah, yeah. You, you speared a spear a bunch of dutchmen they're gonna go back and have a bit of a psychotic response and start the uh east india company and then, uh, I don't know, invent art speculation as well. So 
So NFTs is probably our fault as well. Anyway, we're, you know, we're doing our best to <laughs> live in this, this one new different world that's got lots of different layers sort of just sort of scabbed over the top of our reality. And, um, you know, we just do our best to try and heal and thrive and continue under, underneath all of that, you know, as we change and, and we look different, like, you know, because, you know, as much as, you know, traditionally settlers have sort of talked about how they find us disgusting, they, they kind of seem to like, they seem to be attracted to us <laughs> quite a bit, you know, so there's quite a bit of, you know, sexual uh, activity going on across between these two worlds. And so we end up with, you look like me, which is, you know, so there's about half of us who, who just, you know, look like me, which is pretty much just Kate Blanchett with a beard, you know. Which it doesn't look very doesn't look very authentic, you know. I think you're a pretty good mix, and you know, America is a land of mutts, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I am a mutt. Then we make the we make the best dogs. So yeah, yeah. Opinion, so it's okay. Mm, I, I'm a mongrel indigene with you know yeah a, a number of you know pathologies, mental illnesses, and stuff like that that just happen to be just the right mix to produce some some interesting writing from time to time yeah that's for sure i wanted to ask you we were talking about this is a book that roger and i just read and I, we've been both been listening to your talks and podcasts and whatnot but before the camera started so to speak you said that your new book is in a large way refuting a lot of what you wrote in this book so i would just yeah i'm, I'm really up on this book so i gotta hear this <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I'll have to write the third book before I can get back to you on that one. Uh, I think it's a trilogy. It's looking like it's going to be a trilogy. But I'm bipolar. So I wrote Sand Talk in two weeks during a manic episode. Yeah. A manic episode that lasted about a month. But yeah, so I, I just whizzed out that manuscript in two weeks. I didn't even take leave from work. I was... <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I just kind of got it done over two weeks and i don't know if you know anything about mania and bipolar there's there's a lot of grandiosity and and a lot of like overly complicated thinking and i don't know you tend to uh feel like you can do anything yep. and you know so so it's written from that point of view and i i was also watching a lot of russian propaganda at the time so you see bits and pieces of weird stuff come through I mean, there was a whole chapter that had to be deleted I just wrote a whole pro-Gaddafi chapter <laughs> that had to be deleted. And uh, I was I was really happy that they did later. Mm, but, yeah, that kind of weirdness. I don't know. There's even a little bit uh, where I'm hinting at chemtrails stuff there. You, so you'll see I get quite red-pilled on YouTube. Uh, I was watching, like, Russia Today, like most days. And, you know, so I had a lot of Gaddafi nostalgia and I hated Hillary Clinton's guts and, and all, all this weird stuff going on. You know, there was really good, deep, right story and uh, wisdom from the old people in that book, you know. So that's that's right. And there's a lot of the analysis that I do that I leverage off of that. And the, a lot of the stories that I report on, you know, things that have happened and, and a lot of the research that I report on in there, this is all good stuff and right story. But there's about 10% of the book, which is me just spinning off into, into a weird, weird mania and saying some weird stuff and making some pretty outrageous claims. There's also, I don't know, if you look closely, there's propaganda there, like the whole bit about education being a, you know, being a, being a, a, a 
Russian eugenics experiment, you know, public education, <laughs> that bit. Like, yes, all the facts in that story were true, but they ignored a lot of other facts as well. That story ignored a lot of other facts in order to be that story. So therefore, it was wrong story. You know, I wasn't reporting on reality as it was. I was just taking bits of reality and then modeling a story, a narrative out of that, that suited my singular goal and singular aim of denouncing public education, you know, and, and causing people to question and even feel antipathy towards the institution. And I also attack medicine in the same way, science in the same way, attacked all these Western institutions and, and ways of being and thinking and doing, you know, without very much intellectual rigor. But just using uh, sort of small G guru tricks, you know, cult induction, bloody, um, you know, neurolinguistic programmy kind of uh, stuff, you know, how you, I don't know, love bomb people and, and then all of a sudden slap them. And then while they're confused, you offer them a heuristic, which they inhale directly and completely. <laughs> stuff like that. I didn't even know I was doing it, but uh, I did do that. Yeah. But the next book I've written, it took me two years to write, you know, from the absolute depths of suicidal depression. So, you know, I probably went too far the other way with the next one. And the third one, I'm looking, you know, three bears, Goldilocks, just right. Maybe, you know, we'll see how I go with the next book. So are you saying that the, your latest book is darker than, than Santa? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like I, the next book, I build it off Dante's Inferno. That's the structure of the book. And we're basically going through nine circles of developmental hell on earth yeah. and looking at each circle of hell, looking at the, you know, the, the crimes and the pathologies, the general mass hysteria, you know, pathologies that are going on in the world, the, the moral panics and the, everything else that sort of align with those sins. You know, at each circle of hell, Dante's sins, but also that line up with different mental illnesses that we saw emerging, you know, individually, but also at the group, at the population level, you know, over COVID, particularly here in Melbourne, which had the harshest lockdowns on the planet for a couple of years. Yeah, we, we, we had a lot of crazy coming out, including mine <laughs> during that period. Yeah. So Santalk is Santalk is weird because it's really really good, but then it's also you know there, there's some weird stuff in there, and you know there's even some of the elders who are sharing wisdom, they also went crazy over COVID and became anti-vaccine anti-vaccine nuts and and agitators and you know influencers you know producing content on YouTube you know uh, anti-vaccination uh, new world order you know, sovereign citizen movement. Like, so you've got Aboriginal people aligning themselves and marching alongside white supremacists in sort of COVID denialist sort of very weird actions. It's been crazy here. Aboriginal Australia has gone nuts here the same way everybody else has gone nuts. And it's been a strange, you know, a strange thing to go through, but it gives you perspective on things like Sand Talk and looking back. That was a different time. You know, you could 
mess around with a bit of disinformation then and it was just fun. But I think now with all the stochastic terrorism we see in the world, particularly in the United States, but also exported out to New Zealand and Australia, when we start to see that, the damage that the disinformation causes, it's not a bit of fun anymore. And it's not a joke anymore. And it's not just a, you know, a way to sell supplements. It, you know, it's a, it's a, a force multiplier for catastrophic risk in the world everything from climate change to everything else so anyway that's what this next book is about it that's why i say it's called right story wrong story because it's really looking at that disinformation how you can identify it and then how we can collectively move towards making building right story and it's not by monologuing for like half an hour like i just did by the way (laughs) that's not a yarn (laughs) that's just some guy talking sorry about that but you did ask me what it was like to live in two worlds. So anyway, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that about the place you wrote the book for, because I, it was a puzzling one for me. There were parts that really stimulated, and yes, and other parts that felt like, yeah, there's a pretty clear subtext of, uh, you know, <laughs> Western yeah. culture not so good. Uh, yeah. um, and not too subtle in some cases. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the so and some of the associations were left me wondering. So yeah, the fact that it was written in a kind of mania makes a lot of sense. But yeah, uh, yeah, creative, incredible creative juices there too. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's just it. There's gifts that come with it, but there's there's curses as well. Yeah, thanks for speaking that and for noting that. A lot of people just I don't know if they're trying to be polite or what, but they skip over that, and I find that those conversations are a waste of time. Yeah. It's important to, you know, note the things that aren't working properly because that's how we fix the next one. Yeah, and John and I have listened to a lot of your, a lot of your interviews, and to me, it's felt like well, there's a lot of softball stuff here going. On. We really wanted to get into a little deeper, and you dived right in without hesitation. Yeah, yeah. And just to acknowledge how gutsy you are in acknowledging the manic high and the depressive low from which you've mm. written. Yeah. The manic productivity makes total sense. Being able to write, as you say, from the depths of suicidal despair, that's mm. a whole other process and challenge. Yeah. I, I yeah. vow that you were able to do that. Well, and I've only recently, like last couple of months, actually, uh, yeah, I've gotten treated and treatment and uh, medication. So I'm sort of just coming into some kind of, you know, even keel now. Which you know, it's the dosage is obviously not quite right yet, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's. I tell you what, though, it's amazing. Like for the first time in my life, because it's a really rare form of bipolar that I've got that you have from early childhood. Like you have it right the way through. You got childhood onset. Yeah, I'm a professional. Yeah, so that's uh, my, my first suicide attempt was when I was nine years old. You know, um, and so I can't remember a day in my life of 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 not waking up wanting to die. You know like from when I was a little kid. But, you know, with this medication over the last couple of months, I've got to experience what it is to wake up in the morning as a human being and and want to live. And it's freaking it's amazing. Good God, you people must, wow, <laughs> the lives you have. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm 51, and I'm, just, and I'm just starting to live. You know, it's, um, you know, it, it's amazing. And this this forces you to see things differently. You know, it's like, well, so what now am I going to complain about Western medicine? 
You know, what's my critique of Western medicine? What's my critique of Western education uh, when I'm relying on these institutions who care about my neurodivergent kids to help help me try and get them through? How am I going to keep critiquing all of these institutions that I rely on so much? You know, how can I move my criticism towards something that's actually going to help rather than just being, you know, the firebrand and the anarcho-communist who's run around the edges, buddy, like a dog biting the tires of a car, you know? Yeah, what do I do now? I mean, maybe you guys could advise me. I think you're on the path. My, my brother was also bipolar, my older brother, and he committed suicide in my house. So I, I take this stuff extremely seriously, and I've, I've had my struggles with depression also, so I know that dark side of the street. I'm going to say also, you're, you know, besides being knowing about the Aboriginal world, and you're also highly educated in science and philosophy, and it's quite a package. So I would just say, hang in there, brother. I think you're getting better, and I think I think we need you around. So, uh, you know, and you, you've already tasted the darkness. So I love it when you just started talking about a bit of the light. It gives me hope. Yeah, because we're in a mess, but there's uh, – anyway. Yeah. There's light. Yeah. As light as the dark is, the light is even brighter. That's it. But I think, Roger, you seem to be a man who, who has consistency down. I think that's 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 what i need is you know like i because when i'm good i'm really really good you know yeah you have um, some I, I connect really well and i'm an amazing communicator and a really good listener you know but that's inconsistent because then i drop off too and i drop off quite spectacularly so um yeah i need to give my consistency down well with being bipolar that kind of drop off is completely I mean, it's a completely understandable. And what's ext- what's mind-boggling to me, by the way, I'm, my profession is a, is a psychiatrist, oh. is mind-boggling to me that you have done so much and contributed so much before having a before being treated for this. I mean, that's just mm. mind-boggling to me uh, that yeah. you've suffered from age nine to this degree of severity, and being this creative and uh, creative creative burst during the mania. Yeah, I can understand. But to be have the kind of output you've had over a lifetime, the contributions, the connections, the communication, et cetera, that's why I bow and respect to you. Mm. It has been hard just dealing with that. It's pretty much hell on earth. Like it's a it's yeah. a it's a internal sort of hellscape <laughs> to be constantly in. But you know what works is just the funny. And I think that's what gets us to through that book, Sand Talk, that you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. It's what gets us through all the inconsistencies and the ups and downs and the, you know, the moments of what the hell is he saying now? <laughs> it's just the funny, you know, it's, it's being, it's, it's the capacity to be able to laugh. Mm. Uh, and have you, were you able to hold that during even the depths of depression? I was, it's what gets you through. It's, it's what, Yeah. Hey, you know how in Sand Talk it starts, the book starts with that paragraph on echidnas? Yep. Yeah, yeah, like, and it's just, but it's just kind of a, I don't know, a bookish kind of, you know, musing about the, the, the neurological capacity of an echidna. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, their prefrontal cortex is just massive, like, you know, bigger in proportion than, than, than ours. And they, they're obviously doing some really complex thinking, but we have no idea what they're, we don't know. What the hell are they thinking about? Why do they need all that brain power? 
their brain's bigger in proportion to their body size. And ours is like, are they like plotting against us? Yeah. I don't know. So there was that opening. I did an echidna opening on the next book. And and this is an answer to the question of, you know, just how, did I maintain the funny? Yes, I did. So the opening paragraph of the next book is about echidnas as well. But it goes, uh, did you know that male echidnas have four penises? If I were as smart as an echidna, I could use that factoid to come up with an evolutionary theory about male dominance and project it onto my own species, then sell a truckload of books. It's not really a fact, though. He only has one grotesque dick with four heads, and his mate probably doesn't want that horrible thing anywhere near either of her vaginas. Anyway, so it starts like that. That's a different opening, Ryan, yeah. <laughs> and then it gets it gets weirder <laughs> from there. I got to read this book. <laughs> That makes me laugh, like the, <laughs> you know, because of the whole, I don't know, the whole Jordan Peterson thing and the lobsters and you know what I mean? All these influencers who, you know, they seem like they're, they're they know a lot and they're, they're citing all this evolutionary science and all the rest of it, you know, and, and it seems like they're really smart and, and you, they're kind of like just asking questions and it's, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, I know them. It's it's an uncomfortable fact that there are no female chess grandmasters. You know, like they're saying these things, and they kind of get people that way. Anyway, like right from the first paragraph, I'm making fun of that and debunking that. This whole idea of these secular gurus in the world, you know, getting around like you know, influencing people in some in some pretty horrible directions, and basically that's inching nudging people constantly towards fascism towards autocracy towards exclusionary politics and all these sorts of things yeah so anyway this whole book is just sort of lashing back about uh, uh, against that with some sort of very dark humor yeah it's it's a, it's a weird book it's 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 certainly weirder than santalk and and santalk got as weird as hell in some bits <laughs> as you know yeah yeah, what are you hoping the book will do, Tyson? I have no idea. Did write it in quite an, a series of altered states, and mm. I, I have trouble with it. I can't. I can't see it all in my head. If that makes any sense, I don't have a unified picture in my head of of that book. And I try to flick through it to try and get it get it in my mind uh, as a unified whole, so I could speak about it properly. And but it just keeps running through my fingers like quicksilver. I wonder if it's kind of a state-specific learning that, uh, or state-specific understanding. You're in very different yeah. state when you wrote That's it. it. And it probably doesn't hold for you. In yeah. Now. Well, it, it was quite a dangerous book. The first draft, I, I got two different psychiatrists go through and edit it to take out the parts that would be potentially damaging for people that would be triggering upsetting not just upsetting but that they like the parts that they thought might encourage people to kill themselves because weirdly that's happened with santor quite a bit really like yeah every other week i got to talk someone off a ledge wow they contact me through my university email address which is public you know and they're like you know i've just read santor and i i want to kill myself I'm going to kill myself. And then, you know, then I contact them back and say, look, just send me your phone number right now and I'll talk you through it. And then it's a couple of hours of like, you know, talking someone through their um, 
Yeah, their process. I mean, there are some there are some dark implications to the book. It's like it. Well, there are people. People don't want to be in civilization. Yeah. In these civilizations, it, it hurts them. It damages them, and they want to be in a habitat. Yeah. They want to be in a habitat as as the species that they are, and they at the moment they become aware that they can't be, and that they won't ever be able to be, and that their children and their children's children won't be able to either. A lot of people yeah. in that moment they despair so much that they want to they want to end their life. So I mentioned that in the in the book. The Avatar depression, yeah, yeah. Avatar depression. That uh, when people watch that movie Avatar and and then they want to kill themselves, like they get depressed, and like it's a whole condition. Like they they have to have medication and you know a specific dosage and everything right. for that particular form of depression. It's just blew my mind when I was reading the articles about it. Yeah, people watch this lifestyle on this other planet of people living in embedded existence in in the landscape and. And they know they can never have that, and they just want to die. It's awful. <laughs> so this is why when I look at my own pathologies and the way I'm feeling, and then I look out at the world, I kind of go, this is not just me. No tree burns alone, you know? We're all burning with the same fire, you know? And I look out at the world, and I see the same patterns and pathologies, and I think, what if I work my way through this with story? What if I try to you know do something therapeutic by going right in by pressing pressing down on the painful spots and see what kind of see what pops out you know what if i press all those buttons and see how we go what if i lean into the pain and come out the other side and survive it and what if i take you with me as the reader and that together we like we deal with our we deal with our pain and we see it reflected in the world around us, see all these pathologies and, you know, how these are like just contributing to and, and growing and multiplying the catastrophic risk of, of this meta crisis that's just eating the planet alive. What if we do that together, us too? What if we go on a journey? Anyway, that's this next book. Like, yeah, like I said, a lot of bits had to be taken out because, <laughs> you know, yeah, just for the safety of the reader. Mm. Yeah, so you're what's sometimes called a prototypical person, that is someone who's who's is in their own being, is mm. processing the challenges of their time, their era. And yeah. so you have yes, you have the this bipolar and part of the content that it's taking, the form it's taking feels like a implosion of the various mm. various challenge great challenges and threats of our time yeah yeah own being and if you through maybe you can guide a guide a light for the rest of people yeah well it was weird where the mania went like over covid and with these lockdowns you know two years of lockdowns locked in a house with just my spouse and two neurodivergent kids wow. aggressively neurodivergent kids it's 20 hour days yeah, it was just as interesting where the mania went. Well, where did it go? Yeah, where did it go? It wasn't, well, mania, the mania is, is usually something I can look forward to because mm -hmm. it feels good. But this went down and spiraled down real deep and dark. You know, it did not feel good. You know, I, I was still hyper vigilant and hyper aware and all the rest of the hyper, but just in hell. 
like in, in the most dark, horrific place, and looking at the world and looking at these crises multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And yeah, and, and so the book sort of came out of that. It came out of that spiraling into hell. And that's why I went, that's why I went chasing Dante Alighieri, you know, and his uh, sort of descent into hell with Virgil. You know, there, there's a place in this book toward the end in the chapter, Be Like Your Place, where it's very mystical. Mm. It's actually very beautiful. And it was like, yeah, because it's, it's a hard book. I mean, it's not hard to read. It's, it's really easy to get into the flow of it. But yeah, you're basically sound like you're having a vision there. Yeah. Reminded me of our, our beat poets in the United States, like Kira Aberg yeah. and all of that. And it was it was mm. quite have you had moments where you've seen through this darkness and seen seen something uh well you wrote about it actually. Yeah. I have, but but you need to remember that those are also altered states. Yeah. You know, these are the reasons so as Aboriginal people, we structure these things with ceremony and with ritual. You know, these things are structured uh, in such a way that they do not cross over into the mundane. You're not supposed to have visions in your day-to-day life because that sort of messes up your relationships because you have obligations to the people around you. I mean, you have things to do. The altered states are supposed to happen in ceremony, and that's supposed to be secret and sacred and over there. (laughs) You know, these things are not supposed to happen from your day-to-day. And so when you're a person like me, you uh, occupy a very marginal place in the community. So I'm known as a went, and went means deaf but also crazy because mental illness is seen in our culture as a, as a loss of the ability to hear and to listen. You know, it, it's seen as something that affects your ear. And I'm both hearing impaired and, um, <laughs> and crazy. So, you know, I'm, the, I'm a big went. In my community, that means, you know, I'm capable of moments of, of brilliance and all that sort of thing, but you can't trust me to contribute to decision-making and governance in the community. I can't be trusted for that because I don't leave the altered states in the ceremony. The altered states follow me around in the world, and I'm someone who must be cared for and must be loved and who contributes you know, some pretty great things to the community, but also I'm not someone who can be trusted from moment to moment. You know, take anything I say with a grain of salt. Yeah, and I know that sounds uh, exclusionary and not very PC, <laughs> not you know, sensitive about people with mental illness and everything, but it's it's important. It's important. So we don't we don't like it when people Kerouac around and and or people like you know drop a bit of ketamine and and say they're talking to the the insectoid aliens or the machine elves who have given them the blueprint for a new kind of satellite or something like that. We we're not down with that. We don't like it. That stuff that's supposed to happen in ceremony and it's supposed to be secret and it's supposed to be sacred. You know, magic is something that's in the universe, but it's not meant to scale. It's not meant to be brought across as a technology into the mundane. Uh, it's something that's sacred. And it's just there that it's supposed to be part of caring for the landscape, your custodial role spiritually in this world. So, yes, you know, I have visions and they're there, you know, and when I report on these things, it's it's the wrong way. I'm not supposed to be doing that. You know, I'm in wrong relation when I'm doing that. And it's it's partially this wrong relation that sort of gives a bit of a window into our world, you know, and I think it's what people... Like when they read my stuff, they're like seeing something and they know that 
and they're seeing something they're not really supposed to see. And but they're also watching somebody like spectacularly falling apart before their eyes, and it's like watching a a train crash or something. You can't look away. It's not it's not necessarily pleasant, but it's very arresting. <laughs> I think anyway. That's how I feel if I like try and put myself in someone else's shoes and then try and read a page of my work. I, I feel like that. So I imagine that's how people feel on some level. You know what else was it? Nobody. Not much of Santalk. Santalk wasn't selling very well until uh, COVID started, and like everybody panicked and went, "Oh my God, the world's burning! <laughs> We're all going to die! Help!" And they're looking around. Where can I find the wisdom? Is there ancient wisdom here? Look, this is like indigenous thinking going to save the world, and and people just grabbed it like a drowning man, you know. And suddenly it started selling and. Then it was a bestseller because I think people were desperate for answers. And I think people like the idea that there's ancient wisdom because of that logical fallacy. What's it called? Um, argumentum ad antiquitatum, that argument from, from tradition, from antiquity. The idea that if something's old, if something's traditional, then it must be right. It must be good. It must be pure. You know, and I think people look, look to that and also ad naturum that idea that if something's natural, you know, and so people see indigenous knowledge as being natural and ancient, and therefore it must be good. What can I have? What can I take from that that will make me feel better, that will make me feel like there's some hope for the future? Yeah, so I think people are attracted to that. Although, you know, even in Santog, I spend half my time, like, slapping people for that. Yeah. You know, like I spend half my time debunking the idea that I'm just like, don't look here for your answers. There's nothing here for you. Go away. <laughs> That's like half a Santor is doing that, but in funny ways. And then, you know, setting people up for, to understand that there's contemporary, you know, that in, in indigeneity and indigenous knowledge is contemporary and that it's based on indigenous processes rather than indigenous things, you know. Yeah, and I don't know. It's always been the thing for me is to try and share the way rather than the thing, you know, share the cognition, you know, the the ways of thinking rather than the dream catcher, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah it does. Mm. Yeah, communicating a way of, of thinking and being and relating rather than any, as you say, rather than any acute artifact that people like to pick up. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's a hunger for wisdom, and we're not finding it much in our modern world. So that makes mm. us hungry to go back, mm. go walk about, go sleep under the stars, go listen to the elders or the people that are transmitting it into the world to give us some, as you said, give us some hope, give us some wisdom, give us a way to walk. And of course, you know, I mean, your people have been there 65,000 years. You said maybe more. You learn something in that amount of time. They didn't destroy each other, you know. There's got to be, there's got to be a source there. That's good. I'm starting to think that all indigenous knowledge and wisdom, and and pretty much, you know, the entire human experiment, you know, and way of being, that we're we're here to answer basically two questions. You know, this is your whole entire culture, but also your entire life, and your purpose of being here is to answer two questions: How do you deal with change? And how do you deal with ourselves? 
Stay tuned to part two of our conversation with Tyson Yankaporta. This is strikingly real, often painful, but ultimately, I believe, redeeming and inspirational. I hang in there and let's get in this together. See you on the other side. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.